would invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. So we do continue on in our study of Paul's epistle to the Christians in Ephesus. And we remember that he has been talking to a mostly Gentile congregation about the wonder of what he's going to be calling the mystery of their salvation. How they have been engrafted into the kingdom of God. They who were once afar off have been brought near. And they are no longer strangers and aliens, but they are fellow heirs and citizens in the commonwealth of God. They have been given all of the privileges now that have been reserved for the people of God. That chosen race that we sang about. They have been brought in. And Paul is going to be talking about how this was something that he was set apart for. How he had been uh, chosen by God specifically to be a steward of these mysteries and to, uh, to give them not just to the Ephesians, obviously here, but to give them to us. But before we come to uh, that, that uh, wonderful teaching of Paul, let us go to him. Uh, that is the Lord who gave this word to Paul. And let's ask for his help in understanding it. Please join me. Great and gracious God, we do pray now, Lord, that as we come before you, that you would illuminate us inwardly so that we would understand your word, that it would no longer remain as a darkened book to us, that we would depend upon you, Lord. Help me to divide it aright for your saints. I pray that I would not go astray to the left or to the right or to say anything to them that is not in keeping with your intention. May it be, O Lord, that we are once again amazed at your grace shown to us who were descendants of people who were afar off, who had not received originally the oracles of God, who worshiped idols of their own hands making, Lord, and yet you brought us near. You gave us your word and you engrafted us into your kingdom community, Lord. We do thank you for that. Help us then to be uh, thrilled by these things, to see them as, as the most important news that we can receive. And we do pray, Lord, that you would help us as the world, the flesh, and the devil seek to distract us and to send us off into uh, uh, wandering to and fro throughout the, uh, the earth in our minds, may it not be the case, but may we be fixed in our attention upon what you have to tell us. And we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Ephesians chapter 3, and I will be reading verses 1 through 6. I do remind you, this is the word of God. For this reason, I, Paul the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets." that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. I have to admit that this is one of those sections, in fact, Ephesians chapter 3 was one of those places in the gospel. I could understand Ephesians 2. I had a good grasp, I thought, on Ephesians 1, although it's something that I only really came to understand later on. But Ephesians chapter 3 was when I began to get kind of boggled. I wasn't quite sure what Paul was talking about at various places. He used words like, like mystery. He, uh, he talked about, uh, in the NKGB translation as we have it here, he talked about the dispensation and so on. And I, I was uh, 
not quite sure what he meant. He gets clearer, or at least from my sense, he got clearer as he went throughout, and, and it turned more to exhortations to do things and ways that we ought to live and the difference between how we were before we were saved and how we are to live now and so on. Those things were very clear, but this was a little... A little muddy to me, so it, it really did help when I uh, sat under good teaching and I heard uh, explanations of what it was that Paul was talking about, some of the words that were opened up. I was very grateful uh, for my pastor uh, back in Hatboro and the teaching that he did that. That was many years ago, but um, I, it made several things that were mysterious to me uh, much clearer. Now, um, let me, before I begin to attempt to exposit this section myself, let me ask you an important question, and it's this. What would you be willing to suffer to see people brought into the kingdom of God? And when I say people brought into the kingdom of God, I don't mean just you know, relatives and friends, people who you, uh, you are very concerned about their souls because you, uh, you love them your friends with them, your relatives with them, they're your children, your brothers, your sisters, your parents, your whoever. I mean just people generally. What would you be willing to suffer just to bring people, perhaps strangers to you, people from other countries, for instance, people from other ethnic groups and so on. What would you be willing to suffer to see them brought into the kingdom of God? Would you be willing to give up a little of your time, perhaps, on a, on a regular basis? Would you be willing to move out of your comfort zone, out of the, uh, the place where you, you feel you're, you know, you're safe and, and secure and so on, and talk to people who are not the kind of people you would normally talk to? Would you be willing to give up part of your day once or twice a week to go and talk to people? Uh, would you be willing to sacrifice some of the, uh, the cat meme space on your social media page to uh, the gospel, things like that? Would you be willing to do that? Well, Paul was willing to do a lot more than that. Paul lets those whom he's writing to, these Christians in Ephesus, he lets them know that he is willing, in verse 1, what he was willing to sacrifice for their sake, and that was his freedom. In fact, Paul makes it very clear that he was willing to endure whatever was necessary in order to bring these Gentiles, whom we need to remember, he formally despised, he hated them, he saw them as, as unclean, uncircumcised Gentiles who would someday be trod underfoot. Now he loved them and he was laboring for them. He was writing to them, saying in that first verse that he was the prisoner of Christ. He was Christ's uh, prisoner. He was Christ's servant. He was Christ's apostle. He was Christ's steward. And we'll talk a little more about what that means. But he was also Christ's prisoner. Uh, he was literally a prisoner. He was writing this to them from a Roman jail. And it was his willingness to minister to the Gentiles, we remember, that had caused his countrymen to be whipped up, to lay hands on him, to almost tear him limb from limb, and then to see him delivered over to the Romans for judgment. And so he was now sitting and writing to these people in Rome, but he didn't say, I'm a prisoner of the Romans, note this, for your sake. He said he was a prisoner of Christ. He knew it was the will of God that he be where he was. And in many of his other epistles, he, he notes that he prays uh, that the people who he's writing to would pray for him, 
that a door would be opened up, for instance, for the gospel for which he was in chains, that he might be able to preach the gospel there. Wherever he was sent, he saw that as Christ's hand upon him. It is Christ who has called me. It is Christ who has sent me. So he said, I am writing to you as Christ's prisoner, writing as a prisoner in a Roman jail, but I rejoice nonetheless that now you are part of God's spiritual temple. That was what he was talking about in the previous chapter. You'll remember how they had been made part of that temple made without hands that God was building up stone by stone and how he was praying now for their confirmation in the faith and their growth in the faith and that they would become stars in the heavenly orbit, uh, that they would be people who would also know who they were in Christ and live according to that. We'll see that as Ephesians is opened out. Now, one of the things that, as I said, uh, confused me the first time that I read this was uh, in verse two, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, I thought that was one of the most difficult phrases to understand, if indeed you've heard. What do you mean by that? Um, So, are you saying if, if you've heard of me? Uh, I mean, Paul writing to the, the Ephesian church, this was a man who had spent most of his time uh, in Asia Minor uh, around the, the hub of, of Ephesus. He taught in the school of Tyrannus. He was himself uh, intimately acquainted with the building up of that church. If, he writes and says, if you've heard, if you've become aware of the dispensation there. And I was uh, initially in, in my studies on this particular subject, uh, before I, I heard good preaching about it, um, I, I heard uh, somebody saying, well, this means that Paul didn't actually write the letter, otherwise they would have known him, you know, Paul who was, uh, according to Acts, so, so intimately acquainted with the Ephesian church, there's no possibility, therefore, that, uh, that Paul wrote this letter. I don't think that's the case now. I think that's uh, modern speculation and so on. I think that Paul knew the Ephesians, um, by and large, were aware that he was the apostle to the Gentiles who had been sent to establish the church there, that he had been uh, not only critically used by God in building it up, but also in in creating, in essence, one of the first seminaries that uh, existed within the Christian church, and then had overseen the other men who had gone and labored in that particular area. Um, But we need to remember that Paul had moved on, and this was a large cosmopolitan church in a very important place. Ephesus, you remember, as we've been speaking, was the the home of the Temple of Diana. It had pilgrims coming to it all the time, and the congregation within that particular area would have been growing. The membership, we could put it this way, would have changed over time. And there was possibility, there was a good possibility that there were new people who were hearing this letter because Paul wanted these letters to be read in church. We'll see as he unpacks this, he himself understands that he's speaking under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that he's speaking God's revelation to them, that he is speaking scripture to them. So he expects that these letters will be read, and it's possible that one visitor would be turning to another or somebody who'd just been brought into the church and saying, Paul? Who's Paul? Is he one of the men? Is he an assistant minister? I don't know. You know, I, I, I don't know Paul. But... In any event, it is very possible that there might be some people there who had not yet heard of Paul. Um, It is the case that there are some people here who are new or relatively new to this congregation. I I sometimes hold back on my anecdotes because I know there are people who have been here years and years and years and they've heard all of my stories, like my poor long-suffering wife, 15, 16, 17 times. But then occasionally I'll drop one and people will be like, wow, 
That's the first, you know, Owen Wilson. Wow. Uh, the, the first time I've, I've heard that about you and stuff like that. And I'm like, oh, I thought everybody knew. But then it'll realize, no, you're new to the area. You're new to the congregation. So we need to remember that the church in the New Testament as well was a living, growing church. It was one in which people were, were coming in. There were visitors who would be there in the, um, in the services and so on and hearing these letters for the first time. Now, what was it that they had heard about? What is this, this interesting word, uh, dispensation, which has been so misused in American Christianity? Uh, he says how he had been given a dispensation of the grace of God by Jesus for their sakes. Now, that word that is translated there, dispensation, is uh, obviously a uh, Greek word. It's ekonomia or oikonomia. Uh, and it's best translated, actually, I think not dispensation, but stewardship. He had been given a stewardship. The expression dispensation of the grace given to me uh, speaks, therefore, of his office, what God had entrusted to him. It was this stewardship. Now, what is a stewardship? We don't, we don't have many stewards anymore. You will remember the steward of Gondor, perhaps, from J.R.R. Tolkien, the, uh, the great book of pastoral anecdotes given to us um, in the Lord of the Rings uh, cycle. But uh, in any event, a steward was, according to Webster and his um, absolutely definitive dictionary of the English language, from which we should never have moved, uh, his 1828 definition, he says this, a man employed in great families to manage the domestic concerns, superintend the other servants, collect the rents or income, and keep the accounts. In other words, this was a man whom the master of the household entrusted to run the household for him according to his instructions and to do a good job. Now, we need to remember that stewards did not choose the job themselves. They didn't show up one day, knock on the door and say, hello, I'm your new steward. I'll be taking over running your household. Oh, okay. Come on in. No, rather it was the case that they were chosen by the head themselves. They were chosen by the master of the household and they were expected to run the household, as I said, according to his instructions. They didn't take the position uh, themselves. And so too Paul, we remember when he talks about his own stewardship, he hadn't taken that position himself either. Now this is in, and I, I hate to say this, but this is in uh, marked, um, marked difference from the way that often we see uh, the word uh, apostle or uh, bishop or founder or so on used in, in the American church. It's often the case that somebody will simply put up a placard uh, having received no oversight, no approval, no calling, no laying on of hands, no examination and so on, and they'll just they'll rent an office space and Put up a placard saying, Bishop, Founder, and Apostle, uh, you know, uh, Pearl S. Miller or something like that, and, and claim that authority themselves. They will take it to themselves that they are a steward of God's grace, ministers, ministering in his name without having been called, called without running. That's not what Paul is talking about here. He talks about his own stewardship of the grace of God, and he says it was given to him by God, and it was by his grace. This was a stewardship of the grace given. And one of the things that we're, we should be, and Paul certainly was, we should be amazed at the grace that God gives us in our salvation. It, it is amazing grace. We once were blind, but now can see. God 
visited his grace upon us, sending his son into the world to die for us. This is truly an amazing thing. It is his, his grace, his charis. We did, not, we did not deserve it at all. Everything that we have in the way of salvation flows from him. But also, Paul is very aware that his stewardship is not something he earned. It is not something he deserved. Because you remember, Paul was a persecutor of the church. Paul was an enemy of Christ and his people. Jesus wasn't kidding when he met him on the road to Damascus, knocked him down and said, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? This is not the best way to begin a job interview. All right, meeting with somebody whom you have been injuring. But God had plans for Paul before he ever met him on the road to Damascus. And one of the things that we see as we go through Ephesians, and I hope you see this, I really do. God isn't making it up as he goes along. God is not a reactive God. God had plans for Paul, not just for his salvation, but for his role in the salvation of others, including people like you and me. He had determined that these things would happen before he even created the world. That's part of the the great mystery that Paul has been unfolding in Ephesians. And it's something that amazes him. And he responds to this grace of God with such gratitude and humility. He's not all puffed up and says, I deserve this. I'm what the church has been waiting for. I'm it. I've arrived. This is a man who, although he was one of the greatest of the apostles, he wrote so much of the New Testament, and yet, how does he refer to himself? A slave, a doulos of Jesus Christ. He refers to himself as the chief of all sinners. He he speaks of himself as one who was untimely born. He, He didn't deserve these things, but they were given to him. These were great privileges. They were trophies of the the grace of Christ, the unsearchable riches of Christ given to him. And so therefore, his his office that was given to him and the gifts that he was given in preaching and in writing and those, those miraculous sign gifts that he was given that established the fact that he was an apostle, somebody who was given authority to proclaim the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ that he speaks of here. This was all... Uh, in the Greek charis. It's all God's grace. And the apostleship that he was given was based upon the work of God within him. It wasn't something that he grabbed. It wasn't an office he inherited. One of the worst things that can happen in the church is when you begin to get nepotism. You guys know what nepotism is, right? Nepotism, when you put your, you know, your sons and your relatives into positions, it happened in the medieval church. It can happen in churches today. I see megachurch pastors who, who just move their kids into the next position. What's going on there? Well, they're, they're giving them an office that the Lord hasn't necessarily granted to them. They haven't given the spiritual you know, benefits. One of the worst things that I saw... Um, in my previous denomination, which will go unnamed, was that often you would see, and I'm sure it happens in places in the ARP, it's not quite as high profile, but you would see what we called sometimes the legacies within the church. These were the sons of the, of the great men and the founders who simply were slotted into leading positions based upon their family name. And often these were the men who were arguing most strenuously against our confession and our creed and our Bible, and they were arguing for things that we knew would enculturate the church. Why? Well, because their position was based upon their name, their seniority, their family, not 
the fact that God had bestowed these graces and these riches upon them. One of the saddest things that can happen is when a father attempts to push his son into those positions. I've seen that happen as well. It's one of those things that I, I, I did not, you know, I, I think every pastor, maybe, maybe, I don't know, Josh, if you, every pastor secretly harbors this desire, maybe my, my, my son or sons will become pastors as well or elders within the church. But we should never translate that desire into a pushing somebody into a position that they're not qualified for. Remember, we can do that as a congregation as well. We can take somebody who is highly esteemed within the community, a leader uh, in business or so on, and say, oh, you be our elder, and push them into a position that God has not bestowed upon them through his grace. Remember not to do that. Only when you see the spiritual gifts, only when they're present, is there somebody who you should be calling because they've already been called and set apart by God. Moving on. Paul says that the, the great calling that he was given by God, the stewardship that was entrusted to him, was for the sake of the Gentiles. It was in reference to their being brought into the kingdom that he was commissioned. This man who had once despised Gentiles was called to be the missionary to the Gentiles. You remember what he said in Acts about how he, he uh, as he was talking... Uh, in chapter 26 to King Agrippa. And he says this, recounting what had happened to him. And when we all had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice speaking to me and saying in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. Incidentally, my Hebrew is really shabby this side of glory, but I look forward to the day when I will speak it perfectly in heaven. Moving on. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to make you a minister and a witness, both, both of the things which you have seen and of the things which I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people, as well as from the Gentiles to whom I now send you, to open their eyes in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me." Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God and do works benefiting repentance. I was a steward set apart for God for your sake, O Gentiles of Ephesus and Gentiles of Fayetteville today. Set aside by God for the work of calling you into the kingdom and declaring the great mystery. What is this mystery? That's a word that's used here, for instance, in verse 3. The mystery that had been revealed by God's Holy Spirit to him. Now, mystery in this sense is not spooky. It's not like Scooby-Doo and the mystery machine and so on. And then Paul pulls off the, oh, it was you all along, that kind of thing. No, this is not the mystery that we are talking about. This is mysterion. In the Greek, but it is something that was not known, something that needed to be revealed. Uh, and it's something that was, it was there, it was always present, but it wasn't quite seen. It was something undiscoverable by unaided human reason. It was something that could only be revealed or known by God's apocalypsis, God's revelation, the revelation that had been conferred upon Paul through the Holy Spirit working within him. It was a, uh, something that had been hidden for ages, this mystery. It had been not known before as it was now. 
And it was made known to Paul by his revelation. And the mystery, of course, that's being spoken of by Paul uh, and that had been discussed with such wonder, such amazement by Paul in chapters 1 and 2 is the fact that the Gentiles were going to be brought into the kingdom and made fellow heirs with the Jews. The union of Gentiles and Jews in this one edifice, this one spiritual temple that God was building up. This is the mystery. This is not something that humans dreamt up. This is not human revelation. This is something that required the illuminating work of the Holy Spirit. Now, it was there in the Old Testament. The fact that the Jews and the Gentiles would some be part, uh, someday be part of the same kingdom was something that was revealed. You can't read Isaiah without noticing how often the prophet speaks about the fact that the day was coming when the Gentiles would be included in the kingdom, when people from the nations would, would gather to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Zion, and they would, uh, they would clutch hold, the prophet said, of, uh, of the tunic of a Jew and said, let us go up to the house of the Lord, and so on. B.B. Warfield put it very well when he talked about these sections. Uh, it's under the idea of what is in the old uh, concealed is in the new revealed. And uh, he famously described the Old Testament as a room fully furnished but dimly lit. What happened in the New Testament? What happened when the gospel came in and when Jesus sent out his disciples to the nations? Well, what happened was that the lights were suddenly flipped on. And then looking back at the Old Testament, you could see, oh, yeah. Now I understand how it was that this promise was made, for instance, to Abraham, that through your seed would come the blessing of the nations. And then Paul expands on that subject, doesn't he, beautifully in Galatians 3, where he says that we're, we are the children of Abraham. We're what was being talked about, but, but not through genetic descent, but through faith. Or in Romans, when he talks about how somebody's not a Jew outwardly, but inwardly and by faith and continuing to, to talk about the fact that it's the faith of Abraham, the promise, the covenant of grace that goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15 that talked about how the Gentiles, how everybody, all the nations, some of all the nations, God's chosen race, as we sang about in that Charles Wesley hymn. I love, I love that hymn. Because it's so Calvinistic and yet written by an Arminian. Isn't that, uh, it's, it's funny. But anyway, I love, I love Charles Wesley's hymns. Moving on. Um, so Christ himself is at the heart of this mystery, though. The mystery of godliness. God manifest in the flesh. The secret purpose of God to send his only begotten son into the world to suffer and die for us that we might become part of that spiritual temple. We who had been far off, they who had been far off. He wrote to the Colossians, he said, God would make known the riches of the glory of the mystery among the Gentiles. Christ in you, the hope of glory. He speaks of that in, in Colossians 1.27. This is, this is the great mystery that was waiting for the fullness of time. Now God has made this known to Paul. And he's... he's unfolded his purpose and it's been revealed now to these holy prophets and apostles that the Gentiles were going to partake of the Jewish Messiah, that they were going to be part of his people, his community. They were going to be one body with the Jews in the kingdom. And he says that this was, you remember in, uh, he says, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, this is verse five, as it has now been revealed by the spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. 
They were men who had been set apart and consecrated for the purpose of declaring the revelation of God, unfolding this mystery. That was what they had been called upon. They were called upon in the old economy, that is in the Old Testament, and now in the New Testament, to tell people the things, the mystery, the things that the angels desired to look into. It is mystery all, but now it's been made clear. It's been revealed by God's Spirit. And without the Holy Spirit's working, it's not something that we would have been able to discover ourselves. But God, the Holy Spirit, was making this known. The Lord God himself revealing it through his apostle, Paul. So we find that we are fellow heirs, Gentiles, with those who were part of the kingdom by God's calling, his choosing. Um, But I need to make this point. There is at this point in time... Um, a a place where modern dispensationalists exactly reverse what Paul is talking about. All right, and what do I mean by that? Well, they they speak of what Paul is speaking of as a a special dispensation, a plan B. Uh, Okay, it had not been God's intention to incorporate the Gentiles into the kingdom, but now he's going to incorporate them into the kingdom. But it's the Gentiles being brought into the theocracy in order to make the Jews jealous. And then God will continue his plan with the, the theocracy and the reestablishing of Jerusalem and the sacrifices and so on and blah, blah, blah. It's, it's reversed. The current is exactly reversed. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. And this is an extended quote by Charles Hodge. And I pray that you will be, uh, you'll be patient and that you'll listen uh, because he, I think he unpacks it so very, very well when he explains how we've, we've muddled it so very badly in American Christianity. Um, He writes this, the mystery made known to the apostles and prophets of the new dispensation was that the Gentiles are in point of right and fact fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of this promise. The form in which the calling of the Gentiles was predicted in the Old Testament led to the general impression that they were to partake of the blessings of the Messiah's reign by becoming Jews, by being as proselytes merged into the old theocracy, which was to remain in all its peculiarities. And we remember that the Jews did bring in, you know, proselytes. We had people like Cornelius and so on. It seems never to have entered into any human mind until the day of Pentecost that the theocracy itself was to be abolished and a new form of religion was to be introduced. You remember, what was that question the apostles asked Jesus as he was about to ascend back into heaven? Will you now what? Restore. Restore the kingdom to Israel. Is, is the theocracy going to be coming back into effect at this point in time? But that was not God's intention. So the theocracy itself was to be abolished and a new form of religion was to be introduced, designed and adapted equally for all mankind under which the distinction between Jew and Gentile was to be done away. It was this Catholicity, that is universality, of the gospel, which was the expanding and elevating revelation made to the apostles and which raised them from sectarians to Christians. The Gentiles are fellow heirs. They have the same right to the inheritance as the Jews. The inheritance is all the benefits of the covenant of grace, the knowledge of the truth, all church privileges, justification, adoption, and sanctification, the indwelling of the spirit and life everlasting, an inheritance so great that simply to comprehend it requires divine assistance and elevates the soul to the confines of heaven. Hence, Paul prays that God would give the Ephesians the spirit of revelation that they might know what is the riches of the glory of the inheritance to which they've been called. They are constituent portions of the body of Christ as nearly related to him and as much partakers of his life as their Jewish brethren. The hand is not in the body. Note this, listen. 
The hand is not in the body by permission of the eye, nor the eye by permission of the hand. Neither is the Gentile in the church by courtesy of the Jews, nor the Jews by courtesy of the Gentiles. They are one body. That's the point he's been laboring in the, in the lowering of the middle wall of separation that once divided them. They're now all part of one body. It's not that the Gentiles are being made Jews. And you remember, that's what Paul labored so hard against the Judaizers were. They were, they were saying that in order for Gentiles to be saved, to become part of God's covenant family, they needed to first become Jews. They needed to undergo the rite of circumcision to keep the ceremonial law. And Paul is saying, no, you don't understand. Everything has changed now with the gospel dispensation. The dietary laws, those restrictions are gone. It's not we're all becoming messianic Jews. It's Jews and Gentiles being incorporated into the kingdom, being made part of the same edifice. And this is what God had always intended. It's not replacement. And like I said last week, it drives me crazy when I hear that, that phrase, replacement theology, when you're talking about covenant theology. It's not replacement, it's union. When you, as I said last week, when you adopt somebody into a family, the original children aren't disinherited. It's just we have new, a new union, a new family, a new body put together. So... What is it that brings them all into the family? And the answer is union with Christ. All of us. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. All of us come into the kingdom, not by genetic descent, not by circumcision, not by works that we have done, but through the completed work of Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying that as a steward, this is the mystery that he's opening up, that he's laboring to bring to them. And don't let anybody take you captive. Don't let anybody force you back under the law, tell you you need to become a Jew in order to have the benefits of being part of Christ's kingdom. And don't think that the Jews are lesser than you are. They are also, through faith in Christ, your brothers and sisters. Nothing divides us now. And this is the wonderful good news that together, by the working of God through this mysterious work that he's done, but that he intended from the beginning of time, they have all been made fellow heirs of God and part of the kingdom. Now, let me make, I've made some applications already, but let me make uh, one major application with some sub-points to it. Now, you remember the question that I started off with that I asked you, and that question was, what would you be willing to suffer to see people brought into the kingdom of God? And actually, if we understand it from Paul's perspective, it would be better asked, what would you be willing to do to serve Jesus Christ? Because in serving him, what is our main goal? It is to extend his kingdom, to incorporate those whom he has set apart from time immemorial, to bring them in, just as you and I were brought into his kingdom. Are you willing then to be his bondservant? Are you, do you, let me ask you this, do you think of yourself as the slave of Jesus Christ? Do you? Has he bought you at a price? Are you his man? Are you his woman? We remember that it wasn't just Paul who called himself a doulos of the Lord Jesus Christ, a slave of Christ. James calls himself a doulos of Christ. Peter calls himself a doulos of Christ. Jude calls himself a doulos of Christ. This was a common understanding within the apostolic church. We are bought at a price. We're his servants. He's the master. We're the, the, the stewards. And if you think of yourself that way, are you willing to go where he asks you to go? Are you willing to do what he asks you to do? 
Are you willing to devote your life to his servant, in his service rather, as his servant? I received a call from a, a brother who's planting a church um, down in Florida, and he asked me a question. He, uh, I asked him how things are going, and he said, well, in a physical sense, they're going okay, but uh, he, he said this. Um, he said, what I'm calling you about is, why is it that men don't want to serve in the church anymore? And I, it was like, I, I don't understand what you're saying, brother. That makes no sense to me. And I, I knew exactly what he was talking about. There is, in a, in a radical way, a new way, a shortage of officers within the church and officer candidates. It's becoming more and more difficult to find people who are willing to spend their lives in the service of Christ. It's very difficult to find men who want to be stewards of Christ. The word steward was changed forever, incidentally, by Christian service. A steward of Christ, for instance, is, uh, was defined by Webster in Scripture and Theology, a minister of Christ whose duty it is to dispense the provisions of the gospel, to preach its doctrines and administer its ordinances. This is what God calls men to from within his church, to his service, to be stewards, perhaps in the church or, or perhaps in a foreign country used to be the case that missionaries would go out to foreign countries, they said, taking their coffins with them, sometimes literally, because they expected to die in the service of Christ, but that was okay, because they knew that they were serving the kingdom. They knew what they'd been called to, just like Paul doesn't complain, note here, that he is a prisoner of Christ, because he knew that that was what he was made for. He'd been made to tell people about the mystery of Jesus Christ and how they were to be included in it. There was a book that came out a little while ago called uh, Radical, well, several years ago now, by David Platt. And it talked about how he had, you know, crossed over borders into closed countries, bringing Bibles and had, uh, you know, established secret churches and things like that. It's a little like uh, the work of uh, Brother Andrew earlier in bringing uh, Bibles into the closed countries behind this, the uh, Iron Curtain and so on. And for a while, there was this, uh, all this fervor. We all have to become radicals for Christ. We have to leave our community. We, wherever you are, move. You've got to go now to the, find the worst place in America. Move there and start preaching radically on, the, on the, the street corner. Or you have to go to foreign countries. You have to cross over the ocean and they have to be the worst foreign countries you can think of. Nobody is allowed to go to Holland. We all have to go to Botswana or you know, pick, pick someplace far worse than Rwanda to visit and then you have to sneak in, preferably someplace where if they catch you, they're going to kill you. That's what it means to be a Christian. Brothers and sisters, I have to tell you that that fervor, that, that radical fervor, began to subside very quickly. Everybody got hot and bothered for a little while. And then people began to count the cost. And also a few saner heads began to say, maybe actually there's a more ordinary process by which we're called to the service of Christ. And we are sent to labor in whatever field he calls us, as stewards, perhaps, or, or just servants. Because so that was how Christians thought about themselves. They were the servants of Christ. They were the slaves of Christ. It was just ordinary. And so whether you were called to be a deacon or an elder or just to be a hospitable Christian, to be opening up your house, to be walking the, the streets of Fayetteville, handing cards to people, asking them to come to something that this was really what, what God intended by making us servants, by calling us to his service in his kingdom. But let me ask you this question, are you willing to do that? Because there are so, uh, no, I don't want to say that, that's hyperbolic. There are not as many as there should be. <laughs> um, 
people in the church these days, it seems to me, who are willing to, to simply serve. I did not you know, immediately jump into the pulpit. I, I assure you that, that did not happen. I did not go from I'm saved at 23 to here in Fayetteville pastoring. I didn't put up the placard to do any of those things. But for a little while, for a long while, it was simply you know, holding Bible studies, praying with people, evangelizing my, my lost relatives and so on. It was nothing glamorous. I, I didn't have a title. It was no big deal in one sense. But it was what I knew that God wanted me to do. I had that sense that, you know, from the Great Commission that I was supposed to go and make disciples of the nation. So I better get about it wherever I was in, in whatever vocation that I was working in. Later on, I did go to seminary. And eventually, I, you know, went through all the ordination trials and licensure and stuff like that. I once told a class at, um, uh, what is Carolina Bible College now? It's uh, Oh, yeah, okay. So I was, I was talking to this class about how long it took me to become a, a minister uh, in the PCA, and they're like, what? Why would you do that? <laughs> I'm like, well, because I wanted to be sure that I was actually called and not just calling myself and jumping in and, and that I was trained and equipped and things like that. It can be a long, drawn-out process before you become a minister or a missionary, and that's not bad, but there are things for you to do here in Fayetteville, where you are in your own calling, to be a slave of Jesus Christ, his servant. And they may get you in trouble someday, but nonetheless, that's what we're called to. So I would ask you to look within yourself and ask that question, what am I willing to do? How am I willing to be used? Is it going to Rwanda or is it just going you know, into the neighborhood and asking people to come to church? Whatever it is, find that call. Take hold of it and serve the Lord Jesus Christ, either as a steward of his mysteries, as an ordained officer within the church, or just as an ordinary servant, doulos, of the Lord Jesus Christ. But find your place of service within his kingdom and then serve in that ordinary manner. Looking forward to that day when you will be united in that great assembly made up of Jews and Gentiles and people from every place, tribe, and tongue on the face of the planet. Look for that service and opportunities in it. Let's go before the Lord who calls us to serve him. God, our Father, I do pray, Lord, that you would help us to understand the amazing grace that you showered upon us or the grace that you give to people in calling them into the ministry. I pray, Lord, that you would help those who are hearing me. If you have called them and gifted them to be elders or deacons or evangelists or missionaries or people who are prayer partners, people who run Bible studies and things like that, I pray, Lord, that you would make that evident to them and that you would give them that zeal that's so necessary, that they would see it as an ordinary thing to tell people about the Lord Jesus Christ and that they would think of their entire life as, as their reasonable service to you, something that is to be offered as a living sacrifice. May it be that we all think about the way that we've been called, what we've been gifted for, and what your purposes in our life are. And we pray this in